at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11. Let's give attention now to the reading of God's Word, beginning in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character, hope. Now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, But we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 as we begin uh, a new and significant section in Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout this epistle to the Romans, obviously the chapter divisions are not inspired, but they're helpful. In this case, particularly helpful because we're beginning a new section. But apart from the chapter headings and chapter divisions, Paul oftentimes indicates when he's moving on to a subsequent point by way of words like, therefore. And this is precisely how he begins chapter 5. Therefore, in other words, because of this, for this reason, and often it's, it's pointing back to what he's just dealt with, either in the immediately preceding context or the broader preceding context, or sometimes even throughout everything he said up to that point in the entire book of the Bible. Uh, therefore, therefore, for this reason, and in this case, 
the, the therefore in chapter 5 in some sense comes on the heels of a number of other therefores that help us to understand what he's building on when he makes this bold statement in chapter 5 verse 1 that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Christ. He's building on chapter 3 verse 20 where having established human sinfulness from the end of chapter 1, sinfulness of the Gentiles, then in chapter 2, the hypocritical sinfulness of the Jews, and then he begins to speak of Jews and Gentiles, all mankind, there's no one righteous, not one, chapter 3, verse 10. But chapter 3, verse 20, he begins to sum these things up, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So in terms of being right with God, the law simply point out, points out that we're disqualified and that we need not a righteousness that comes from man or from self, but from God through Christ. This is then established in the subsequent verses where he speaks, verse 22, of the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. He goes on in chapter 4 to speak of Abraham and David and really of every believer who believes in Christ, who receives the imputation of righteousness just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him unto righteousness. And in chapter 4, verse 16, he sums that up. So chapter 3, verse 20, saying you can't be justified by the law. It points out your sin. Then chapter 4, verse 16, Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So he's established sin. Then he establishes the work of Christ, who reconciles us to God through the work of redemption, through His propitiation, turning away God's wrath, procuring and gaining God's favor. We receive all of this by faith, just like Abraham and David. And he says, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. And then verse 22 of chapter 4, and therefore, it was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. So he sums it up with all these therefores. In other words, what he's saying is, I've established sin as disqualifying all of us for, from self-justification. I've established Christ and the righteousness of God through Him and the fact that it's by grace through faith alone. And now he's saying, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, in other words, on the basis of the previous therefores, now therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, it's significant here that he all of a sudden begins to speak in terms of we and us. See, earlier in this epistle, the previous couple of chapters, he's been dealing theoretically. He's been speaking to us of the Gentiles and the Jews and all of us by nature and, and he's speaking theologically, he's making arguments, he's interpreting the book of Genesis concerning Abraham, the book of Psalms concerning David, and, and he's making all these arguments, but now, having established it all, he says, okay, now we're going to move forward, and I'm going to address you as those 
who having heard all of this so far, either are believers by this point, or you ought to be, and we don't have time to keep going, we're going to move on. Right? And I think in terms of this sermon series, it's fair to say, I don't know how many sermons we preach, but probably 50, 60, probably, who knows. Um, but we, we've gone through this material, and Paul's gone through it painstakingly, thoroughly, carefully. And now he says, we're going to now move on to the fruitful benefits that are enjoyed by all who have believed in Christ, who have been justified by faith. And so he's going to address believers. Now, that doesn't mean that moving forward in our sermon series, we're not going to be proclaiming the gospel and urging unconverted people to put their trust in Christ. But the fact of the matter is, we've done that. We've done it time and time again. And I hope you've believed by this point. Because there's no reason why we need to spin our wheels and keep circling the runway. We need to land this plane and get to the the reality of what it is to be a Christian. Having been justified. What does that mean that for, for a Christian, what does it mean for you to have been justified? Right? You were lost and dead in trespasses and sins. You were clothed and caked and defiled by sin, scarlet and crimson, but now you've been made white as snow, white as wool through the shed blood of Christ. Having been justified by faith, what's in store for you? What, what are the benefits? What does this entail? What does this involve? And that's what Paul is getting at. And he says we, because he's saying, listen, I've been justified by faith. I've done everything I can to proclaim to you how you can be justified by faith. And now, chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, we're going to move up to the next level and we're going to begin to interact. Those of us that have put our trust in Christ. It doesn't mean that the door is shut, right? As Rabbi Duncan once said, Arminianism is uh, all door and no house, and hyper-Calvinism is all house and no door. The doors are still open, but the fact of the matter is that we're going to be looking at what it means for you, dear believer, to be in Christ, to have been justified by faith. And he goes on to say, we have peace with God. What a precious verse. We have peace with God. And I'm tempted to go into a a manuscript uh, difference here where some of your Bibles are going to have a footnote um, that, uh, well, unfortunately our Pew Bible has it as well. But the fact of the matter is, uh, this verse reads, we have peace with God. And there are people who have a view of textual manuscripts that is contrary to to our confession of faith that is contrary to really many important verses in the Bible who would like to cast doubt or who would, by their very position, cast doubt upon verses like this. But the fact is, God preserves His Word. And the Bible that God has preserved, the manuscripts that the church has had in its possession, and the ones that God has bequeathed to us as our inheritance through His true church, even down through the Reformation, it's unquestionable we have peace with God. Not let us have peace with God. See the difference. Uh, it's interesting. Some of the people who try to you know, 
gravitate back and forth to, to the modern textual critical, higher critical mentality where they're trying to reconstruct the Bible and go back and archaeological discoveries and digs and manuscripts and see if we can piece together and reconstruct the New Testament instead of the one God's handed to us providentially in the church. And uh, they say, well, it doesn't affect doctrine. It doesn't affect the doctrine. Well, my friends, uh, you tell me if it affects the doctrine. If this verse read, therefore, having been justified by faith, let us have peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we might have peace with God if we take further action and go out and get it and acquire it and obtain it. Who knows how, because the text says nothing about it in the context. It's not let us have peace with God. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And it's interesting, according to the reconstruction of the text model, uh, virtually all of the scholars come out and say that the evidence, according to their flawed non-confessional view of the Bible, uh, which is very prevalent among liberals and Bible deniers throughout history, these people come out and say, the evidence supports, let us have peace with God. The evidence supports, let us have peace with God, they say. Westcott, Hort, Metzger, uh, they all say it, all the experts of this flawed non-confessional method. Also, you have... uh, Reformed commentators who compromised on this issue in the 19th century, Shedd, William Shedd in his commentary on Romans, actually says that uh, the evidence supports, let us have peace with God, again, according to this flawed view, but for doctrinal reasons, for dogmatic reasons, we're going to choose we have peace with God. And it's interesting, all the modern critical versions, the ESV and all these others, even though the evidence according to which they render all the other verses would say it's not we have peace with God they still at the end of the day um, I guess you know in some sense to function in an evangelical way at a deep at a deep down level they have to compromise their view and adopt our view and go with the providentially preserved thing because they're not willing to cave they're not willing to give up that scripture And uh, I would say, if you're not willing to give it up, if you have to determine the reading based on doctrine and compromise your entire critical view, why not just come to the consistent view? Why not just adopt uh, the basis for our pew Bible here and uh, the Textus Receptus? But uh, according to the Bible, God has preserved, we have peace with God. Who knows what, what other versions are telling us, but having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Unassailable, unchangeable, eternal peace with God. And that's the first of several fruits of justification that Paul is bringing out for us. We have peace with God. Verse 2, we have access by faith. We have access by faith to the grace in which we stand. We're going to be looking at these uh, with God's help in future sermons. So we have peace with God. We have access into the grace that enables us to stand. We have hope. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we're looking ahead to any in far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that is to come. In addition, 
we're able to experience that glory that is to come even in the midst of tribulation. How do we get this hope, this rock-solid believing hope of the glory of God in a world of tribulation and sin and discouragement and failure and, and all these things? Well, we're told, verse 3, not only that, but we also glory in tribulations. Knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perseverance character, character hope. Now that hope does not disappoint. So we're going to be looking at these things, these benefits or fruits of justification through faith in Christ. And notice it is through Christ that we have peace with God. And it's through Christ that we have this joy and this hope and this perseverance to the end. It's all through Christ. These are things that He has purchased for us. These are things that at our conversion, He has freely bestowed upon us. This is not something, once again, uh, it's, it's not something that we have to go get. Therefore, having been justified, let us have peace with God. Something we need to do. No, we have it. Objectively, we have been reconciled to God. It is a status in our relationship with God that is final, that is immutable. You couldn't go out and add to it if you tried. It's that rock solid and immutable. Peace with God. So let's consider that this morning. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand peace, we have to understand the conflict from which we've been delivered, right? If, if there's a proclamation of peace and everyone's rejoicing and there's confetti in the streets and there are parades, okay, the, the, only, the only way in which that makes sense to celebrate peace is if you understand the war, the conflict that has been brought to an end. We don't properly appreciate statements like, We have peace with God until we begin to delve into the reality of what our relationship was to God in actual experience as children of wrath, as children of disobedience at war with God from the very outset of human history when our first parents fell into sin. Fallen man by his sinful rebellion has provoked and initiated a cosmic war with the Almighty. And you can see it in Genesis 3 where Satan, who has rebelled against God, who says, I will ascend on high, I will be like God. Satan, the the deicidal rebel who hates God, who wants to supplant God, who wants to undermine God, he comes into the garden, he tempts Adam and Eve with the same nonsense, with the same failed approach that got him booted out of heaven, and he persuades them, he deceives them. He breaks them down one step at a time until they become at enmity with God and until they're at peace with the serpent and joining His seed, His army, against God. If you eat of this forbidden fruit, you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. And so Adam and Eve ate of the fruit in rebellion against God. I will be like the Most High. That's a statement of Satan Isaiah 14, it's also a statement of fallen humanity because the context there is actually the king of Babylon 
as the representative, as it were, of Satan's humanistic kingdom. So we provoked a war with Almighty God. Romans 1 tells us that we're haters of God by nature. And again, just like Satan, who's the murderer from the beginning, not only do we have hearts of murder toward others, deep down, if we had the chance by nature, we would kill God Himself and, and remove His dead body from the throne and take it ourselves and put His crown on our head and wield His scepter. We are deicidal by nature. And both human history and common sense demonstrate the utter hopelessness of this enterprise. It, it is utterly hopeless to fight against God. Even the religious leaders who were persecuting the early Christians in Acts 5.39 in the Sanhedrin, even they knew that much. We're told here, Gamaliel, who was uh, the Apostle Paul's teacher and mentor, he's telling the Sanhedrin, but if it is of God, if this Christian faith is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. If this Christian faith is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. So even according to the enemies of God, in their more lucid moments, when they're thinking clearly, if this is of God, it's hopeless to fight against it. Now, Satan knows that, and Adam and Eve should have known that, but for some reason, the foolishness of sin and unbelief blinds us to how utterly hopeless it is for man to be victorious in his war against God. Think of God's nature. How are you going to overcome and defeat God who is a spirit? So many of these kinds of things are addressed in the Old Testament. Isaiah 31.3, speaking of the Egyptians in their war against God. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out His hand, both He who helps will fall, and He who is helped will fall down. They all will perish together. In other words, in this instance, God's people are thinking, well, because they're at war with God, they're rebelling against Him through idolatry, and they're thinking, well, we'll get the Egyptians to help us, because they're, you know, they'll protect us from God's judgment. But whether it's the Jews, whether it's the Israelites or the Egyptians, they're men and not God. Their horses, their chariots, their methods of warfare are carnal, not spiritual. God is an infinite and all-powerful spirit. He's invisible. You can't detect Him. You can't stop Him. Uh, he who helps will fall. The Egyptians trying to help the Israelites, they'll fall. God's people will fall they will all perish together. God is a spirit. He's an infinite spirit. He's everywhere present. So even the highest heavens cannot contain Him. You cannot flee from the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. He's everywhere. So you're not going to get away from Him. You're not going to take Him by surprise. He's all-knowing. He knows your thoughts, your intents of your heart. He's unconquerable. He's undefeatable. He's all wise, so you can't outsmart Him. Proverbs chapter uh, 21, verse 30, there is no wisdom or understanding or counsel against the Lord. 
So you're not going to outsmart him. Uh, The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, the Scripture tells us. Uh, If you can work that out in your mind for a moment, what Paul is saying there, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Uh, those Those who attack, those who seek to dig a pit for the people of God, those who make their assault against God, their wrath comes down upon their own heads. And God is righteous and just, angry with the wicked every day. So He's not just going to get you know, sick and tired of the war and maybe He gets lenient and He says, well, we're just going to let this go. He's unchangeable. He's immutable. Uh, he's angry with the wicked every day and He's just. Psalm 7. Psalm 7, verse 11, God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he, the wicked, does not turn back, God will sharpen his sword, he bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death, he makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked brings forth iniquity, yes, He conceives trouble and brings forth falsehood. He has made a pit and dug it out and has fallen into the ditch which He made. His trouble shall return upon His own head and His violent dealing shall come down on His own crown. You're not going to defeat God in this war. And uh, I decided to take it out of the sermon. We could go throughout history, all the attempts to defeat God, but that would have taken multiple sermons in itself. Uh, Just common sense will tell you a God who is righteous and just, immutably so, and who has all power and all might. Uh, Listen to Isaiah chapter 40. Listen to the greatness of God, His majesty, His power. Isaiah 40 verse 10, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. Listen, verse 12, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him, with whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to Him? Verse 22, it is He who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. So so this is the army that's going to fight against God. Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not go unpunished, Solomon says. God is infinite in His power and His majesty and His glory. We're just a bunch of grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. 
To whom will you liken God? You can't fight against God, and God is eternal, which means His wrath is eternal in hell. 150,000 people die every day, many of them rebels against God entering a lost eternity. God is winning the battle against His enemies. And not only that, His sovereignty. The sovereignty of God makes God's kingdom, God's agenda, unassailable. As Nebuchadnezzar was forced to acknowledge the most powerful man in the world fighting against God, he says, what God can deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from my hands? And that God cut him down like a tree, and he fell. And he had to confess that God does whatever He wills among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? The God who spoke to his grandson, Belshazzar, through Daniel, who said, this God holds your breath in his hand. This is the God who says in Deuteronomy 32, the song of Moses. He says, I kill and I make alive. Think about that. You're going to fight against the God who determines the day of your death. It's appointed for you to die once, and then comes the judgment. And that same set of verses in Deuteronomy 13 tells us that the feet of God's enemies will slip and fall in due time to destruction. God has appointed it already. This is the sermon text for Edward's sinners in the hands of an angry God. Their feet will slip in due time. I kill and I make alive. How are you going to fight against God? Not only His sovereignty, but when you war against God, you're at war with all three persons of the Trinity. Listen to the parable of the wicked vine dresser speaking of the wrath of the Father against sinners. Matthew 21, verse 37. Then last of all, He sent His Son to them, saying, They will respect My Son. But when the vine dressers saw the Son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill Him and seize His inheritance. You see the deicidal nature of sinful man when we had the chance, when God became a man in frailty and weakness and vulnerability. We said, this is our chance. Come, let us kill Him and seize His inheritance. So they took Him and cast Him out of the vineyard and killed Him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those vine dressers? He will destroy those wicked men miserably. So there's the wrath of the Father, the wrath of the Holy Spirit. When the enemy comes in like a flood, Isaiah 59 19, the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will raise up a standard against him. When you stand against God, the Spirit of God, who's also called the Spirit of burning and judgment, Isaiah 4, verse 4, raises up a standard against you, an insurmountable standard of war. And you say, well, what about the second person of the Trinity? And you see, here's the rub, because again, when, when the Son of God became weak and frail and took upon human infirmities, He opened Himself up to where the world looks at Him and says, well, here's our chance. It's the second person. We're going to have success. And Satan thinks, well, I'm going to strike his heel and I'm going to 
put him to death. And so they crucified the Lord of glory. You say, well, how does that work? Haven't they had a victory in their fight against God? But my friends, nothing could be further from the truth. And we could answer this with most of the Bible tied behind our backs. We could just go to the Psalms. In Psalm 2, when the nations rage and plot against the Lord and against His anointed, the Bible says it's a vain thing. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? A futile thing. A hopeless enterprise. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed. But you see, the Lord sits in the heavens and He laughs. And He eventually urges them that if they do not become wise and be instructed as kings and judges of the earth, if they do not serve this crucified, risen, reigning Savior and King with fear and rejoice with trembling, if they do not kiss the Son in worshipful allegiance and submission, He will be angry and they will perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. But a little. We're comforted when we think that grabbing hold of Christ by even the weakest faith, just the hem of His garment, and we're saved. Yes, but also, He has enough wrath in the tip of His pinky finger to destroy the entire earth. You will perish in the way when His wrath is kindled but a little. So you simply can't overcome it. I mean, Psalm 18. Listen to Psalm 18. Speaking of Christ. Verse 37, I have pursued my enemies and overtaken them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under me. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save. Even to the Lord, but He did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. You could go on there. The point is made. Uh, We could go to Psalm 21 where it speaks of the arrows of King Jesus strung and bent in the bow and flying against the faces of his adversaries. We could go to Psalm 45, 3 and following, where his right hand teaches him glorious deeds of might, and his arrows are sharp in the heart of his enemies. We could go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 16, where his enemies are calling out for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them and to hide them from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. We could look at Revelation 19, 11 and following, when Christ on His white horse with His army comes with a sword proceeding out of His mouth with a name on His thigh, the Word of God, and He victoriously conquers and crushes His enemies, the beast, the false prophet, the world, the flesh, the devil. He defeats them. And he dashes the nations to pieces and rules them with an iron rod. Jesus cannot be defeated. He's the one in Revelation 20 verse 11 who sits on the throne, the great white throne at the last judgment 
and all mankind is set before Him, and He's the one from whose face all heaven and earth flee away. God incarnate is not the weakest link, but in some sense the strongest by the power of God. Now, thankfully, God has offered terms of peace and reconciliation through this same Jesus. This same Jesus that if we're at war with God, He will hunt us down and beat us as fine as dust and cast us as refuse in the streets. Thankfully, God has commissioned Him, appointed Him, anointed Him, and offered terms of peace and reconciliation through His finished work. And that's one of the most beautiful themes. It's the most beautiful theme in all the Bible. The gospel of peace. Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation. You can see in chapter 53 how the Lord Jesus Christ purchases that peace, that good news of peace comes through the blood of His cross. Verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes, we are healed. This is one of the major themes of the New Testament. Peace and reconciliation with God. Those who were God's enemies. While we were still enemies, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He reconciled us to God. He gives us acceptance with God. We become friends of God, children of God. We're enlisted in God's army to, to turn around full circle and now face off victoriously against the, the very army of the world, the flesh, and the devil whose insignia we once wore, whose uniform we once put on every day. We're now at peace with God. We're reconciled to God. Colossians 1, verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself, by Him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now He has reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in His sight." You can see there, we could go to Ephesians 2. He Himself is our peace. We're now on good terms with God. It's like when the sailors cast Jonah into the sea and that storm which had threatened to drown them all. Peace. Stillness. Calm. God's wrath has been appeased and replaced with His favor and love which He Himself foreordained to give us through Christ. Peace with God. And that's offered on terms of surrender. Terms of surrender. Those of us who are believers have come to God through Christ and obtained this peace by surrendering ourselves into His hands through saving faith. 
We've put down our weapons. No weapon formed against him shall prosper anyway, so we've put them down. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, then those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. When we came to God through Jesus Christ in saving faith, we said, I believe in Christ. And if He died for me, then into your hands I commit my entire life. An offering, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing, I surrender my entire life into your hands, O God. I trust you. I entrust myself to you for time and for eternity. I place myself in your hands and at your mercy entirely. God, through Christ, has died for us that we who live should live no longer for ourselves. And so the true believer will have surrendered his self-rule, but also his self-righteousness. If you go further along, 2 Corinthians 5.18, now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and given us the ministry of reconciliation. So he says, I'm now a friend of God and I'm going to proclaim the good news of peace so that you can be a friend of God. That is, God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. So this is the God who is at war with an army of sinful rebels who have zero chance of making any progress in the war against him. They're all headed for hell. He could destroy them all in a heartbeat. And yet, the mercy of God is such that he commissions ambassadors, preachers of the gospel, ministers of reconciliation, and he pleads. God is pleading that you would accept these terms of surrender. It's unbelievable. We implore you. He says, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So you need to surrender your self-righteousness. You need to accept the fact that the only hope that you have is the perfect righteousness of Christ And the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary, imputed to Him in the great exchange at the cross when He died for your sins. The terms of surrender. Now, we would never accept those terms. As as sinful, depraved, self-centered, self-absorbed, arrogant rebels against God, we would never accept those terms. You could proclaim that ministry of reconciliation until you're blue in the face, But until God sovereignly regenerates the heart of a sinner, it's not going anywhere. It might glorify God's mercy that He's offering it, but apart from Psalm 110 verse 3, a willing people that He makes in the day of His power. Until He makes us willing, sovereignly, by His sovereign grace and mercy, giving us the gift of faith, we're going to be fighting against it tooth and nail. We're going to be like... The Jebusites, when David said he was going to conquer Jerusalem, 
from the Jebusites and make it his capital. And you can read this, 2 Samuel 5, verse 6. Uh, the, the Jebusites say, he's not coming in here. Uh, our, our disabled and handicapped citizens, actually, if you look at it, are, are wounded, are injured, are, are handicapped. They're going to fight off David. Uh, he's not coming in here. That's the heart of the rebel sinner until God makes him willing in the day of his power. Oh, yes, he's coming in. Um, in some sense, as some preachers have said, you know, Jesus is knocking at the door. Open the door. Well, the Holy Spirit enables us to open the door. He is coming in. And his arrows are sharp in the hearts of the king's enemies, not only to destroy, but for his elect to convert, to give us new hearts, to receive that peace. And dear believer, you've been conquered. You've been enabled to surrender. You've traded your uniform. You've traded in all all of the things that were associated with your rebellion against God. And you have been brought into union with Jesus Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We have it now. We have it tomorrow. We have it forever and ever and ever. It's not, again, it's not something you have to go out and get. It's yours. If you've believed in Christ, then you have this peace with God. The war is over. You're a friend of God, a child of God. As I said, you're a soldier in His army. And now all the things that were at war against you are now for you. Think think of God's nature, His attributes, which, which were against you. And we recounted a number of them. But now when you think of His almighty power, you see He's mighty to save. He's powerful and able to do far beyond what you can ask or think. Not in terms of able to do beyond your comprehension in tormenting you in hell, but able to bless you and and commune with you and enjoy a friendship with you in ways that you cannot comprehend. He's mighty to protect you, to sustain you. His faithfulness and justice which stood against you demanding retribution and judgment and punishment for your sin. Now, 1 John 1, 9 says, He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Hebrews 6, verse 10 says, He's not unjust so as to forget your labor of love. It's unfathomable. The justice of God in a sense, requires him. That's not perfect theological language, but you get the point. In a sense, it requires that God not only will forgive your sins, but that he will actually keep in mind the gracious works of sanctification that he's doing in you and through you to reward you for them. He's not unjust to forget that. See, the justice of God, which is the guarantee of your damnation before your conversion, before your justification. Now, He's just and the justifier. Now, His justice guarantees every aspect of your salvation. Uh, Righteousness or justice and peace have embraced. They've kissed, as we sang earlier, Psalm 85.10. Even the fact that God is everywhere. Who can flee from your spirit? Well, if that's the spirit of burning and judgment, and you're under God's wrath, well, that's a fearful thing. But if you're a believer like David, Psalm 139, who can flee from your spirit? Verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? 
or where can I flee from your presence? This is a good thing. The, the unbeliever wants to get away from God, but the believer has full joy in the presence of God. Cannot flee from His presence. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning, I mean, it doesn't matter where I go, you're with me all the time, everywhere. Even the fact that God knows everything. You've been set at peace with God's omniscience. God's all-knowing mind. Before your conversion, uh, God knows all your sins and He's going to throw the book at you at the last day. He's going to open those books and you're going to be damned. But after your justification, like Peter, when he's being confronted even for his denying of the Lord, John chapter 21, Peter, Simon Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? And, and his feet are put to the fire and he's mourning over his sin and he's wrestling with his own weakness. But what is it that enables him to answer the Lord and say, yes, I love you? He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. See that? If you're justified, you have comfort from the fact that God knows all things. He knows everything I need. He knows all my weaknesses and my sins. Because think of it this way. Think of it this way. If God's going to blot out all of your sins, He needs to know what they are. if, If a doctor is going to eradicate cancer from your body, He has to know where the cancer is. So the fact that God knows all of your sins, if you're justified, and if it's God's purpose to blot them all out, it's comforting. And he knows the sincerity. This is what Peter was getting at. He knows the sincerity of your heart that even if it's a hair's breadth of sincerity and you're fumbling and bumbling and sinning, but you truly believe and you love God and you want to keep His commandments, He sees it. He knows it. You can appeal to His all-knowing mind, all-seeing eye. We could go on and on. The magnificent power that's been demonstrated in the gospel beyond what we can ask or think. Also, His sovereignty. God's sovereignty, which would potentially discourage us, right? For instance, God's sovereign decree. God has decreed to save some and not others. And we rack our brains and we, we, we find ourselves at times as believers, at least some believers, just overwhelmed with fear and anxiety and doubt about the eternal decree of God. Has God chosen me? Has He predestined me? But you see, when you've believed in Christ and received justification through faith alone, you can grab hold of that part of the golden chain of salvation which extends from eternity past to eternity future, but part of it hangs down low to to be held on for assurance by the believer. Listen to Romans 8. Verse 30, moreover whom He predestined, these He also called. Did you hear the Gospel and you received it by faith? God effectually called you out of darkness into light. He called you. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. So you can't go into eternity past and see if you've been predestined. You can't go into eternity future and see if you're going to be glorified. But if you've been called to faith and justified by faith, you have that assurance of peace with God. And you know 
that your salvation extends from eternity past to eternity future in the unchangeable plan of the God who has made peace with you through the blood of Jesus. The sovereignty of God then becomes not a source of discomfort and anxiety, but it becomes the bedrock of our assurance. Ephesians 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself. Paul uses that to open his letter to set the Ephesians at ease concerning their union with Christ and the infallible assurance that it brings. God has set you at peace with perhaps the thing that causes so many Calvinists a lack of peace. He set you at peace with His decree, with His sovereignty, and also with His providence. We know, says Paul, Romans 8.28, that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We know that we'll be conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the firstborn among many brethren. We know that even our greatest affliction throughout our entire life is momentary and trivial compared to the far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory that, that our affliction is working for us. And so we can be anxious for nothing. We can be anxious for nothing. And we can come before God through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and make our requests known to Him. And the peace of God that passes all understanding guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. As the Heidelberg Catechism says in the first question, if you're in Christ, if you're justified by faith in Christ, then you know that all things are made subservient to your salvation. All things in heaven and earth. All things in your circumstances. All things means all things. Subservient to your salvation. You're at peace with the sovereign God. You're at peace with all three persons of the Trinity. Hebrews 12, when we come into worship and we commune with the heavenly Jerusalem, we are coming in the presence of God, the judge of all. God, the judge of all. Is that comforting? Yes. According to Hebrews 12, it's a great comfort. That's why we gather. By faith, we commune with God, the judge of all. When you were in your unconverted state, you're hiding with Adam and Eve in the bushes. But as a Christian, justified by faith, you welcome an opportunity to come into the presence of God, the judge of all. The Lord Jesus Christ, whose rod dashes His enemies as a potter's vessel, His rod and His staff, they comfort you. He's your good shepherd. The Spirit is your other comforter. And you're at peace with God's judgment. As Paul says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is risen and is even at the right hand of God making intercession for us. Who will bring a charge? You can be at peace with the judgment of God. It's appointed for you to die once, then comes the judgment. You can be at peace with the judgment of God. Because the fact of the matter is, if God is for you, who can be against you? 
God the Father is for you. He sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins so that you'd be justified. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is your advocate with the Father. When any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Even Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2, 1. We're reconciled to God. God is for us. And so we can anticipate the second coming, not saying, hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. While heaven and earth are fleeing, the believer will be drawing near. Because for us, we, we want to hasten the day. We love His appearing. Our redemption draws nigh. It's nearer than when we first believed. And last thing I want to say here this morning is that it's this very truth that we need. Our peace with God is what makes us more than conquerors. The fact that we know in our heart that we're at peace with God, that God is in fact for us and not against us. Romans chapter 8, again, it's all in Romans 8. Can't wait till we get there, Lord willing. But if God is for us, who can be against us? You need that truth. You need it. You need to hear about it. And you need to hear about it at, at the very time when we as Reformed preachers are some, in some sense least likely to give it to you. Right? Uh, and I think we need to be careful as Reformed preachers that we can be afraid to preach this very truth to those believers that are backsliding and struggling, and we think, well, if somebody's just, you know, struggling and not even struggling, they're living in sin, they don't need to hear this, they need to hear all these other things, and, you know, Reverend Eeyore from the pulpit is just bringing up all these dark and drab. Yes, we need that. Yes, we need to be confronted when we're in sin, but we also need this. This, my friends, is precisely the truth that will enable you to overcome sin and the world and the devil. This is the truth, knowing that God is for you, that He's at peace with you, and that you have God on your side, knowing that, believing that, reminding yourself of that, will liberate the true believer from backsliding. You need to take it with you. You need to put it in your pocket and, and, and put your hand down there and take it out from time to time throughout the day. If God is for us, who can be against us? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Gracious God, what can we say in response to these glorious realities which our minds can barely comprehend. We praise You and thank You. Thanks be to God, for You have delivered us. You have reconciled us. You have set us in heavenly places, seated with Christ, accepted in Him. We pray that You would enable us by the work of Your Holy Spirit more and more to know that You are for us and not against us. And that we would walk in victory more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Conquering over all temptations and sins and opposition. That we may take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.